and welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast. Joining us for our last episode of the season are our panel of history buffs. We've got Xenia, who loves to talk about all things ancient Rome, especially the Emperor Hadrian. We're also joined by Meg, who will kindly be sharing her knowledge of the ancient Greeks. There's Barney, who will take us on an educational journey to the ancient Near East. And I'm Flo. I'm here to learn with you, since I'm not an expert on any ancient civilizations, but maybe I can offer some input on today's episode. We're talking today about neurodiversity in the ancient world. Neurodiversity is a term used to describe brain differences some people might have. For example, autism, ADHD, OCD, dyslexia, dyspraxia and dyscalculia all come under the bracket of neurodiversity. We're actually recording this episode at the end of World Autism Awareness Week, which is a good time for me to share some of my knowledge since I've been diagnosed with autism myself. Of course, every neurodiverse person is different, so I can only speak for myself and my own experiences. I'm looking forward to hearing all about possibly neurodiverse people throughout history. It would be really difficult and probably inappropriate to diagnose ancient historical figures with neurodiversity. We aren't psychologists, and they're not around to talk to, so if we talk about people and their behaviours, we aren't giving them a diagnosis, we're just chatting about behaviours and how they might indicate neurodiversity. So World Autism Awareness Week for me is really interesting because being autistic you start to see a lot of information, certainly as the years go by, better information about um, autism, more accurate anyway, because when I was diagnosed it was mostly aimed at parents or carers of, of young children who had quite severe autism and um, and it's really nice to see those misconceptions start getting cleared up. I think one of those misconceptions we might actually have to trace back to the ancient Greek language, I think, because the word autism itself comes from the ancient Greek word autos, which means self, like himself or her, well, autos is himself. Um, so I think that's quite a common misconception about autistic people, isn't it, Flo, that they're very sort of self-centred or self-absorbed and not able to empathise? Definitely. I mean, even when I was diagnosed, I was, you know, told that I, I would have issues with empathy. And I think actually I'm quite an empathetic person and I always have been. I think it's true that a lot of autistic people are sort of uh, recognised to be in their own world. But there's it's nothing to do with being self-centred. It's just a it's more to do with social misunderstanding, I think. And and we certainly can be very empathetic people. That's really interesting. I, I love the meaning of words. I love it when you bring up a word meaning. I have got so many word meanings for us today. <laughs> oh, good. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> Would you like to hear the origin of the word panic, which I thought might be relevant, given we're talking about kind of minds and brains and possibly mental health stuff? Absolutely. So I think this is actually quite a funny etymology for quite a serious topic. The word panic comes from um, the Greek god Pan, so that's where we get the pan from. And Pan was the god of shepherds and, you know, he, he liked wandering around the forest and very much a person of nature. Um, but he really liked taking long naps in the forest, like having a little afternoon sleep. And sometimes if he had a, this afternoon sleep and someone woke him up, he would shout so loudly and angrily that all his all the sheep around would suddenly bleat and run away. Um, and that's where we get the word panic. So if you're panicking etymologically speaking you're actually just experiencing having woken someone up from a nap when they didn't want to wake up I love that that's brilliant that's <laughs> like me when I'm woken up from a nap I'm, <laughs> exactly. I'm gonna have to get some sheep to frighten <laughs> I love the idea that he was he was reacted so badly to being woken up from a nap that we now have a whole you know the hot the word for fear is named after that reaction <laughs> so 
Senya, I know that you have done a little bit of research on uh, ancient figures who might possibly be neurodiverse. So just before I launch into one example that I've come across, I just want to say that there's, there's been some medical research, some DNA research that's shown that uh, autistic genes were definitely present at least 10,000 years ago. So we know that there have been neurodiverse people throughout history. I wonder, uh, Xenia, if we found the same bit of research, because uh, as I was you know, pulling at the threads and going back through time, I found a paper uh, called The Stone Age Origins of Autism. Um, was that Penny Spikins? I yeah, think. Penny Spikins. Yeah. And and I found that a really interesting uh, approach because, again, that history is so ancient and so prehistoric that all you've got are these very limited traces of art uh, in uh, cave paintings and uh, engravings on bones and stuff like that. And um, I thought it was a, a very novel approach to the topic saying that, you know, the visual memory that was seen in very limited contact with animals was enough for people to commit very detailed drawings on the walls of caves and, and things like that. And just wondering whether you can see any traces of autistic behaviour with that remarkable visual memory. Yeah, there's another explanation, which I think um, Simon Baron Cohen, he proposes that it's technological advancements might be a, a sign of uh, of an autistic or neurodiverse mind just looking at a problem in a different way of sort of going like, oh, here is a stick here is a pinging string or intestine or something. What if we put these together and make a bow? <laughs> so that's, that's Definitely. theory. I mean, that that's quite a common theme about sort of thinking creatively and thinking differently. So Temple Grandin, for example, is quite a famous autistic woman who, um, amongst other things, has, has, has changed how animal husbandry works. So she's designed... Uh, places where cattle are kept to lower their anxiety for example because the way that she thinks is she puts herself in the shoes of or the hooves of the animals um, and can and can de design buildings which cause less stress better cattle which means a higher yield of meat or milk or whatever um, and certainly that sort of creative vibe that you were talking about Barney is, is present in people that we know are autistic today so in autism you have something quite often called a special interest so mine for example would be genealogy or at the moment easter eggs so, which is an interest that you that you have that you know could be perceived as borderline obsessive but what it means is that you have a huge drive to learn more or do more in that particular area so so we can certainly apply what we know now to be quite clear indicators to to historical figures but we definitely can't say this person definitely had ocd or this person definitely had autism should we have a look in that case at the uh, Emperor Claudius, maybe? He's he's the only person I've come across who's sort of, well, who's, whose life has been written about in detail. That's, that's the other problem we come across is uh, sometimes a lack of, of proper evidence, of very detailed evidence. Um, but although he's, he's never depicted as disabled or differently abled, it's when you go into um, written sources about him, it becomes very clear that he, uh, he, he seems to have had a limp. He seems to have had some sort of physical differences. He could, um, his, his neck wobbled uh, and his, his head would wobble from side to side. He had a stutter. Um, sometimes his speech was slurred. Um, I think the interesting thing about some of the, um, the, the neural aspects that have been described is that initially he was sort of written off as a child. He was called, you know, dull um, or stupid or, you know, not not 
able to fulfill any kind of political office that maybe his brother or his sister could or his uh, other relatives because uh, he's born into the imperial family so he's expected to take on uh, a prominent political role but uh, over time this does seem to improve and he ends up writing actually a lot of like publishable treatises he writes 20 books on Etruscan history at one point and he invents three new letters for the alphabet um we've got to hear which letters they were I know it's a bit of a distraction but that's that's (laughs) juicy stuff yeah please so there are only a couple of examples in which they're actually used because I think afterwards people were like no (laughs) but um one of them is really interesting it's sort of like a um it's it's like a T but the line across the top of the T has dropped a bit further down and it's it's supposed to be a sound that's halfway between a U and an I. It's the uh sound as in maximus. So where you're not saying maximus and you're not saying maximus, you're saying maximus. So is that kind of like schwa in do you know schwa? That sounds like a schwa to me. That, that we love like... schwa's in English. I don't know what a schwa is, but it sounds like a really fancy fine dining restaurant. <laughs> I am obsessed with schwa. <laughs> What's schwa? I've got a booking at schwa for seven, darling. It's, uh, so is, is, is it a, a letter in the international phonetic alphabet? Is that right? I started talking about this and I'm not actually sure, but it's, it's, it's written as an upside down E, upside down backwards E. And it's the uh sound, like if you say sofa. Mm. Oh, they're used in phonetics, aren't they? So if yeah, you open exactly. a dictionary, it's used in the phonetic bit. Sorry, that has t- taken us on, on a bit of a tangent, but this was a project of, of Claudius, right? Uh, yes. This shows that he, you know, he had a, a very high functioning brain when he applied it to problems of language or of history. There are certainly some features there that are, are quite, quite autism related or maybe even OCD related. That sort of obsessive writing on on subjects that he very was quite clearly passionate about. That could be that could be a, a symptom. Um, yeah, quite possibly. I think it, that's probably very likely. But he's also incredibly neurotic. He gets really, really worried that there are plots against his life all the time. He's not very good at choosing which people around him to trust. I mean, it's it's a difficult um, exercise at best if you're someone in power, especially an emperor. So a huge aspect of being emperor was judging cases that are brought before you. And in some instances... He makes really, really smart decisions. You know, in a in a story with a woman who um, is disowning her her son, and he orders her to marry him, and in that instance, he sort of forces her to say, "Okay, no, actually, that is my son. I don't I don't want to marry my son." So that's thinking outside the box. But in in other cases, he's awful and he's very easily led by either side. Um, he again it's this problem with knowing exactly who to trust he he's described as sort of being at one minute you know really really wise and in other other moments like positively silly (laughs) that's the actual word that's used or how it's translated I find it really interesting some of the things you've mentioned Zenia really do line up with things that we use to diagnose autism now so for example you've described him as as finding it difficult to to know who to trust and that's quite a common theme 
that we see amongst neurodiverse people. So it's quite difficult to pick up on the social cues that would make you believe that someone is lying. So I'm, I happen to be quite good at body language and picking up on that. I say that I'm probably terrible, but but being able to understand whether someone is trying to use you for um, for personal gain, especially if you have a position of power, it's quite difficult for some people, especially on the autistic spectrum, to tell if that person has an honest um, approach to a situation or if they're looking out to gain something for themselves or they want to influence you so they benefit themselves or their group of people. So that's quite a common thing. And that sort of logic that you described in, in terms of court cases, he's very logical, he makes he makes logical decisions. And then some of, of his cases that he's judged sound like um, he was described as, as silly in the direct translation that fits in with with decisions I make at work and at home I'm, I make very logical decisions but I'll also make decisions that are logical to me and probably me alone for like my own my own thought plans and my own way of thinking so so it does it does tally up with a possibly autistic person one other trait that I think can sometimes happen with uh, with autistic people is he's he's described as reacting like too loudly to things. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> His laugh is just a bit is is fairly alarming actually for the people around him. I I definitely know some some neurodiverse people who laugh too loudly. I wonder if that's a that definitely. could be a trait. It's quite difficult for me sometimes to be around other neurodiverse people who are quite loud because I'm I can be quite quiet and calm and soft in my in my personal life. If I'm I don't know if I'm doing a podcast like now or if I'm performing, I'm capable of being very extroverted and very loud. But when I come off stage, I like to be calm and quiet. But it does make me think. You know, he's an emperor and he's still doing emperor stuff, <laughs> and he's still part of his his family. So it does make me wonder sort of what people in different socioeconomic um, brackets how they would have behaved around someone like Claudius maybe or someone with a different sort of form of neurodiversity that's something that we don't have that much insight to in the ancient world as I mentioned before because of the sort of um, issues of of things being recorded you know it tends to be men and important men who get written about but we, we just don't know about that many other parts of society. I think it also depends in terms of that kind of that idea of how people react to people behaving differently in the ancient world. It also massively depends on what people thought was the cause of unusual behavior. But for a lot of uh, ancient Greek history, any kind of abnormal behavior, even any kind of extreme mood was thought of as being divinely inspired. So of being you know, caused by the gods or even caused by kind of possession by the gods. Um, but that really goes both ways in ancient Greece. That can be seen as a, a gift from the gods and an honor, in which case people people behaving strangely um, and even people who are seen to have seen to have gifts which we might now really associate with types of neurodiversity like extremely good memories um, that could be seen as an honor or a gift but then also possession by gods could be seen as a punishment for being evil so yeah it's interesting it, it sort of goes both ways it sounds like an Oprah Winfrey episode where she's like, you get a possession and you get a possession and you get a possession like anyone could have a possession Mm, yeah. yeah. And I think that yeah, that means that also the, the the idea of hallucinating or seeing or hearing things that weren't there, I think from from what I've seen would have been significantly less stigmatized than it is now because of this idea of, of divine madness. Um, Plato talks about it quite a lot and says that it's a good thing. He thinks divine madness is good and should be 
given a lot of respect. I think it's interesting. So you've got Homer, um, my favourite, my favourite man, uh, <laughs> who was blind supposedly the, the mythology says that he's blind and then also Tiresias who's also blind maybe not so much neurodiversity but um physical differences they're both blind but with their blindness comes added gifts so for Homer that's the you know the gift of being able to um be inspired by the muse and compose and recite the epics um and for Tiresias he has the gift of prophecy so the ancient Greeks definitely did have this understanding of of sort of being different in one way would then also give you extreme gifts it's a misconception that that people with autism have sort of like superpowers there's certainly some abilities that i have because of autism like uh, hyper focus which is the ability to focus in and block everything else out when i'm when i'm working for example so i can i can fit in a full working day into two and a half hours if i'm hyper focused um so that is that that's a that's an ability that I've got because of autism rather than a deficit. But I really like that the ancient Greeks were like, with this perceived divergence, you have um, some negative qualities, but a lot of positive qualities as well. So it's almost like you you might be blind, but you also have the gift of telling the future, or you may you may have legs that don't work like other people's legs do, but you are able to like brand brand stark game of thrones i guess you can you know uh possess a crow many miles away it's excellent so i quite like that like balance of um of good with perceived bad that's that's Mm. something that i experience i guess as well i might have a panic attack in a tesco but my god if you give me a family tree i'll be able to research it back until you know the dawn of time I find it interesting, uh, Meg, that you brought up the the divine influence because um, listeners might remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about uh, hospitals and healthcare, and I had mentioned that often uh, in ancient Mesopotamia and especially the texts that originated in Babylonia, they're in, uh, interested and keen to ascribe illnesses to gods. Um, but in the case of certain um, behavioural disorders, uh, especially like uh, OCD, they think they found some evidence for a description of OCD. Um, They don't attribute it necessarily to gods and goddesses, but to someone having sworn an oath. Oaths are fairly important in the ancient Near East, um, and you were bound, you know, by a social contract to fulfil certain roles. And it was such a pervasive idea that if someone was, was exhibiting obsessive behaviour, they would think that they'd sworn a private oath to keep doing that particular thing over and over again. And that was why they were bound to, to do it, um, because they were duty bound, honour bound to do it by this oath that had been sworn. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So that's another explanation kind of on top of either a biological cause or a divine cause. There's the idea of a, yeah, an oath. That's so cool. Yeah, it's like explaining explaining it in a, in a social way almost. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, this evidence comes from um, a middle Babylonian text <laughs> called Sherpu. Uh, which is an incantation series where um, basically telling you if you've identified certain uh, problems in your life or even uh, behaviours that might be considered a disorder from, let's say, the Babylonian norm, uh, you might carry out a particular incantation to get rid of it. And uh, yeah, in this case, the the subject of the disorder said he does not know why he's compelled to take things uh, or he doesn't know why he has a phobia of meeting an accursed person. Um, and so there are these descriptions that 
they did identify certain behaviors, but they couldn't really explain uh, what was causing them. And it certainly wasn't in the same realm as gods and goddesses. Mm, that's really, really interesting. There's also, I think, again, when, when you mentioned um, like the link to the physical medicine that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that we get the exact same change in terms of the treatment of um, neurodiverse conditions or mental health in ancient Greece, that pre-Hippocrates, it's very much gods and goddesses. And then Hippocrates comes along and just like he does with physical medicine, is like, hang on a minute, what if all of this stuff isn't caused by a supernatural thing? It's caused by, um, you know, a, a biological cause. And he says, and he's also one of the, you know, one of the key figures in saying all of this stuff is in the brain, which again, so that's, that's crucial for even the word neurodiversity, the neuro there refers to the brain. Um, and he says, from nowhere else but the brain comes joys, delights, laughter and games and sorrows, griefs, despondency and lamentations. Um, I think that might be a bit snappier in the Greek, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, so that there's there's that again, that movement from a divine cause to a, a biological cause. He says it's all coming from the brain and that's where we get normal behaviours, but also abnormal behaviours and extremes of emotion. So I think that's really cool. It's where we get that same shift. I could only find one word that any scholar anywhere has tried to translate as potentially having autistic connotations, um, which was by these um, experts called Skurlock and Anderson, who've written a lot about diagnosis uh, in Mesopotamia. And their word is Shehanu, which was originally translated as giant um, and now appears in the dictionary as ecstatic. They also attempted to describe it as autistic uh, because they, again, the word has associations of, of unbalance um, and agitation and mood swings. So this it's it's a description of a behaviour that uh, we we can describe in neutral terminology now. But f for the Babylonians, it was a divergence. Um, it was the cause of a curse. You know, a mother might give birth to an unbalanced person, this Shihanu, um, if she had been, uh, you know, if someone had cursed her in the street the whole thing about this person is unbalanced because their mother was cursed on the, on the street is actually not far off how people perceived uh autistic people and their mothers until very recently so in the 60s 70s 80s um mothers of autistic children were often blamed for for the for giving birth to autistic children because they were called refrigerator mothers so they were cold and unfeeling towards their children i think that's probably due to the fact that many of these mothers will have been autistic themselves because there's a genetic element in in autism and that's a that's really recently uh, in the grand scheme of things, that that has kind of been uh, written off as a as a misconception and actually quite horrible and blamey. And um, it's not far different from your your child is autistic because you're such a cold, uh, emotionally distant mother to your child is autistic or unbalanced because you got cursed in the street. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. It's like it goes to show how much uh, thought has progressed in, in, you know, the last, let's say, 30 years. Um, and also how there may be a grain of, of biological truth behind this association. But as you say, Flo, um, it didn't change for, for thousands of years until quite recently when um, scientific and social thought about um, the autistic spectrum has come on in, in leaps and bounds. The way you just both as well be talking about women and um, how that links to neurodiversity, I think is also definitely something in ancient Greece. And I think earlier, Barney, I don't know if this is linked to anything you've been looking at, but the idea of hysteria 
that that word comes from the Greek word hustera. So that's another nice etymology for us, which means womb. So the idea of female hysteria, um, the ancient Greeks thought it was because of the womb moving around the body. And that persisted for a really, really long time. But the ancient Greeks blamed that wandering womb for like so many behaviours, symptoms, physical illnesses in women. So it's, it's definitely possible that women neurodiverse women in the ancient world would have been kind of written off as as having hysteria definitely I wonder if there's any record of of ancient women I know that in Victorian times this was moderately common that women would have bouts of hysteria and then recover and I wonder if that's related in any way to burnout so a lot of neurodiverse people will experience something called burnout because they are trying to thrive and live in uh, in a world that is geared towards neurotypical people so I often think that you know I I might be autistic but I don't think I'm I'm disabled in any way I think that the only time I feel disabled is when the world disables me and that can be as simple as the lights in the supermarket being a bit too bright or this or the you know the the way that I don't know, the cinema is extremely loud. Those are sort of sensory overloads that that can be quite overwhelming. And the world is is geared towards neurotypical people. So I am more likely to have a burnout if I'm doing even just a normal nine to five job. So I can imagine women throughout history doing their sort of whatever it is that they're doing, whether they're raising children and doing housework, or if they're a lucky Spartan woman, like we've, we've talked about in the past, running a farmstead, um, that, that they will have bouts of burnout where they're just tired and they need to reset. And then, and then they'll be back to normal for a while. And then they'll have another burnout a few months later. I wonder if that's, that's related to, um, to being on the spectrum or being a neurodiverse person. I think it is also fairly exhausting trying to make it in a world that's geared towards men as anyone who's read Invisible Women will uh... <laughs> yeah I would definitely I would recommend Invisible Women and um, another book I'd recommend is Neurotribes by Steve Silberman who is a journalist uh, who had a look at the history of autism so many people have this mi- misconception that neurodiversity like autism ADHD oh we're having an we're having an epidemic of it suddenly everyone's got a diagnosis and there's and when I was at school only one person who was a bit weird was autistic and now like eight children in my in my son's class are autistic and and it wasn't like that in my day I think actually how it's been throughout history is that slightly eccentric or different people were just that they were eccentric or different people without understanding why and what neurological mechanism made them different. We've talked about looking at historical texts and and medical texts um, but one other thing that um, I found as an interesting it's a, it's a it's an academic practice is looking at literature and seeing if um, any characteristics of fictional characters uh, could be linked by things that were occurring in the real world because you know writers throughout history have, have written about what they know and about what exists around them, even if it is speculative and full of gods and monsters and stuff like that, you know, humans can't write without a human basis a lot of the time. And I found this really interesting study by a researcher called Amar Anas at the University of Tartu in Estonia, um, who looked at the Epic of Gilgamesh and tried to find out whether any of the traits that Gilgamesh exhibits uh, could have been inspired by you know, real life people with uh, on the autistic spectrum. I'm always I'm always fascinated by um, fictional characters um, 
who who meet those sort of criteria for being a neurodiverse person because um it's thrilling to see someone who reflects part of you back when you when you read about them or when you learn about them yeah I mean some of the examples that came up um uh because towards the end you might remember from when we talked about Gilgamesh in relation to love is that after his uh partner Enkidu dies uh Gilgamesh starts wandering in the wild and he, he takes very poor care of himself um and he's, he's got this kind of persistent restless spirit and, and when he's trying to attain immortality um he's avoiding sleep and so this um Amar Anas was sort of trying to identify these behaviors with the potential uh, acknowledged behaviors that are associated with with autism and spectrum conditions so yeah it's there's no it's difficult to make empirical links but in terms of representation as you say Flo it's a really novel academic approach I think. So um, the author Caroline Lawrence she writes fantastic children's books that are set in um, in the ancient world in ancient Rome um, and one of her books is called The Charioteer of Delphi. It's about uh, a boy who um, clearly exhibits autistic traits. He's, um, he finds it difficult to speak to people, but he has a very um, strong affinity for horses, a bit like that, um, the woman, I can't remember her name, the woman you mentioned earlier, Flo, who does animal husbandry. That's Temple Grandin, yeah. Temple Grandin, yeah. So he gets, I suppose, invited to be like a trainee stable boy in Rome. But uh, the other stable boys, that I think they they can detect his his vulnerability and some of his differences, so they they bully him. But his talent is recognised by the stable manager, and he ends up becoming um, a a top charioteer. So I just think that is is a fairly creative way of showing maybe some of the difficulties that neurodiverse people had in the ancient world, but also some of the ways um, that they could push the boundaries of achievement. I mean, given the lack of evidence and the lack of us being able, the, the inability that we have to say this was definitely the case, I think at the moment, like imagining ourselves in that situation or the way Caroline Lawrence does is is probably the most helpful exercise we can do. I agree. It, um, it, it acknowledges the reality, as we discussed right at the beginning, that autism has existed genetically for, for thousands of years and deals with that representation in a fictional way that, you know, must reflect a reality that is missing from our historical texts. Um, and yeah, I think that's a very satisfying way of, of harmonising all of our interests. I've really, really enjoyed this podcast, partly because, you know, uh, it's about something that I can finally offer some insight on, which is a nice change. We'll be back to normal, I think, next season with me not knowing anything of what's going on. But before we leave, um, what did you guys enjoy most about today? I really enjoyed learning about uh, Meg's example of the travelling womb and that being an explanation for all sorts of different behaviours. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an interesting and novel way of diagnosing someone. Ah, uh, yeah, you don't worry about it. Your womb's gone off on a wonder. Yeah. It's gone to Spain. Um, I really liked, Barney, I can't remember what word it was, but the word you were saying that was translated as kind of unbalanced. Um, I thought that was really interesting, the the ancient evidence that you had there. Oh, that's Shehanu. Yeah, I loved that. That was great. Uh, what I loved about this episode was uh, hearing uh, Xenia's summary of, of the life of Claudius and then Flo kind of identifying um, behaviours that were familiar or maybe even unfamiliar in that and, and that kind of dynamic between you know the history and the lived experience of, of autism I think that's a that was really interesting to hear you guys talking about. 
I do have one last fun story, which I think you might enjoy, Flo. Uh, it says that when, when a debate was going on about butchers and vintners, he, uh, this is in the Senate House, Claudius shouts out, now pray, who can live without a snack? And then he goes on to describe all of the pubs he used to go to. <laughs> oh my god nice brilliant it sounds like his special interest is snacks and i have to say (laughs) i that's right up my street that's something that i have a special interest in too (laughs) that's brilliant well i think that has to be my favorite thing that i've learned today then um and thank you ever so much for a season of of wondrous uh information thanks to to alison who joined us at the beginning of the season Thank you so much for for joining us. We're going to take a little break now for about a month or so, um, but follow us on Twitter, keep an eye out, and we'll let you know when we're coming back with season two, which will be full of new adventures into the ancient world and possibly some special guests as well. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Against the Law. If you enjoyed it, hit follow or subscribe so you'll get all our future episodes in your feed. We love hearing from you, so please get in touch with suggestions and feedback on Twitter at AgainstLaw, that's L-O-R-E, or email AgainstTheLawPodcast at gmail.com. Bye for now. <laughs>